good morning again. If you have your Bible, go ahead and find the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 10. We, we've been out of Mark for some time now, and, and now we're going to wade back into it. We uh, had studied the first nine chapters of Mark, and again, we're continuing where we have left off, and we're picking up in, verse 10, or in chapter 10, verse 1. And uh, as we wade back into the waters of Mark, we wade into some turbulent, dangerous waters uh, in this first section in chapter 10. And Jesus is asked the question about divorce and remarriage, and these are the dangerous waters in which God has given me to speak to you about. Now, this subject that Jesus is questioned about, it's very relevant to his time, it's very relevant for our time. It is something that um, we should not approach with uh, any kind of flippancy or with a calloused heart about us, but it's something that we must not avoid. So I, I know that some in this church have been divorced. I know some of you have been remarried. There are some of you that have shared with me your experience, that have shared with me your pain, your heartache, and hopefully you have sensed my sympathies through that. Everyone I've really ever talked to about divorce has said very similar things and have very similar emotions in connection to divorce. And divorce brings with it great pain, great sadness, great turmoil. And not only to those that are the ones being divorced, but really to all the others that are involved. So the children, the family, and the friends that are all riding the waves of pain that are caused by the divorce. So I understand divorce is not something that we should, we should take lightly or something that should be treated, treated as the unforgivable sin, as what it's oftentimes kind of deemed as in our church culture. You will not hear me say that divorce is the worst kind of sin to be, ever be committed, nor will you ever hear me say that it's okay to commit my intentions are to give you what I believe to be what the scriptures teach about this topic. And this sermon and next week's sermon are not a summation of what your elders would agree or disagree upon, but simply what your pastor, elder, has come to understand and believe the scriptures to teach. So if you want to blame anybody or ask questions about, what did Todd say? Uh, I will be the one to blame, not your other elders. So you can come and blame me. Uh, Discuss with me, send me emails, hateful messages, whatever you would like to say, uh, and I'd be happy to entertain that conversation. Uh, so don't, you don't have to run to your other elders and, and uh, you know, condemn them. It's just me that you can condemn, okay? So there, there's a lot of questions that are going to come out of this, and again, we're only going to cover uh, two sermons dealing with this subject. So there's a lot of things we're not going to be able to talk about, a lot of scenarios and circumstances and, and very specific things that maybe have happened in your life or other people's life that you know of. But what we will find, what I think we'll find is some clear principles from Scripture and also some things that I think are implied from the Scripture as well and from the text that we'll look at over this week and next week. Now, in my research this week, I did a lot of reading, a lot of research into divorce and from one divorce attorney's website, like I told the first service, don't get nervous, I'm not getting a divorce, it's just for research's sake, okay? So from one divorce attorney's website, they gave these statistics, and they said that every 36 seconds, there's a divorce in America, 
which equates to 2,400 per day, 16,800 per week, and 876,000 per year. And that's just in the United States. Now, the divorce rate for a first marriage is around 41% currently, and the divorce rate is 60% for a second marriage and 73% for a third marriage. And what this basically boils down to is that one in four families will face divorce in our country. Now, if both you and your partner have had previous marriages, you're now in your second or maybe third marriage, you are 90% more likely to get divorced than if it was your first marriage. 90%. I didn't give this statistic in the, in the first uh, service, but also if you're a Navy SEAL, the uh, percentage is 90%. So if you have any aspirations for Navy SEAL, don't anticipate being married very long. Now, where is this coming from? Like, why is it so bad in our culture? Why do these statistics, they're just ugly? The ugly truth of divorce is all around us, and it's statistically here. Now, we don't have all the details in these statistics, and so don't try to read some other things into this that are not there. But what's the cause of this? Where is this coming from? And and what about our own just recent culture, recent country? What, what has happened? Let me give you just a little brief history lesson about divorce and no-fault divorce in our country. On January 1st, 1970, the then governor of California, Ronald Reagan, signed into law the, the first no-fault divorce law. Now, by 1980, just 10 years later, the national divorce rate had doubled to 50% in just 10 years. Now, Reagan, he later admitted that this is one of the biggest mistakes that he had ever done in his political career. And essentially what happened with no-fault divorce as it swept across the land and it became really the law of all the country, and surprisingly, New York was the last state to adhere to this, it gutted marriage of its legal power to bind a husband and wife together, thus allowing a spouse to dissolve the marriage for any reason or no reason at all. Now, basically, it was a removal of a standard that restricted divorce from taking place. Now, some states had in place requirements for divorce, such as maybe adultery or abandonment or cruelty. But with no-fault divorce, it eliminated all this. And so all divorces became legitimate because of this law. So we're not that far removed from this no-fault divorce and Here's the statistics to show us that things have not went well since that. Now, divorce rates have been declining in the last decade or so. Now, don't get too excited because also marriages have been declining. So the, these have been progressing in the, in the same downward uh, trajectory. And why is this? Marriages have been dropping likely because of the great threat in, into divorce with marriage hovering around 40 to 50% over the last decade or so. Well, it could also be to the fact that there's a lack of admiration in our culture toward marriage. I mean, quite honestly, if you watch a TV show or a movie, what do you normally see? You don't see people getting married. You see people just living together. or These, these kinds of relationships. And marriage is avoided. And marriage is talked about in a very negative sense in our culture. People are not taught, or possibly people just don't care, what God has to say about marriage. 
Now, this really should not be surprising to us to see statistics like this and to see a culture that is moving in this direction when in our country we've become less and less centered on Christian principles. But what is also very interesting was what I found in my research for today, and that is there's two states that are among the highest divorce rates in our country that are two of the highest per capita populations of evangelical Christians. Now, looking across the Bible Belt of America, this, this trend continues. This is not just through these two states, but it continues throughout the Bible Belt. And there's something going on in these areas where there's a high per capita of Christians, but there's a very high percentage of divorces. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that in these counties and, and in these, these states that it's just Christians being divorced, but it, it does indicate that the communities themselves are suffering greatly from divorce. There is a great need for the church to teach on marriage. There's a great need for the church to teach on divorce and on remarriage and to teach on it, what I say, to be accurately from the Bible and really to start holding the congregation accountable to walking in obedience to the scripture of what God has said and what what we can, again, clearly see from scripture and I think also the implications of scripture. Now, it's it's very real, it's very true that divorce, it's, it's ugly, it's painful. I don't think anybody would, well, in the right mind anyway, would say that it's a, it's a great thing. I think we all know that there's a, a grave problem, but how, how do we find the solution to this? And well, I think what Jesus does here in, in Mark 10 uh, moves us in the right direction, gives us a right trajectory. So let's, let's go to our text, Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 1. It says, And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and ordered to te- in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now here in in Mark chapter 10, verse 2, we see these Pharisees again trying to come after Jesus and discredit him in some way. And so they asked this question, this legal question of Jesus, since they were experts in the law, which they, again, not knowingly, were asking the lawmaker this question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, at this time in Israel, there was a great debate, and there had been for some time, about uh, divorce. And there was kind of two schools of thought by uh, two Pharisee groups, and uh, one of those being Shammai, and the other, the Pharisee group of Hillel. And the debate was over the legitimate grounds for divorce. Now, Hillel uh, uh, advocated for divorce based upon any good reason or any good cause, such as 
The wife was not a very good cook and kept burning the food. And that was his good cause. And then we have the other end of the spectrum uh, where he would teach that divorce is limited to adultery only. But in his teaching, he would require divorce and then permit remarriage, but only for unfaithfulness. So the Pharisees, they might have been hoping to accomplish maybe one of two things here, but it's really the same purpose, and that is to discredit Jesus. And so one of their main purposes might have been to get Jesus to say something that would be so offensive that Herod would hear of it, and Herod would take care of Jesus like he took care of John the Baptist, whenever John the Baptist had said something about Herod's marriage. So that might be part of their plan, to just get Jesus out of the way by him saying something very offensive that would get back to the ears of Herod, and he would end up like... John the Baptist, or second of all, that Jesus would offend, uh, maybe not Herod, but would offend one of these two groups of thought, or maybe both of them, hopefully, and he would alienate himself so bad that the, the community, the culture would reject all of what Jesus would teach. Now, Jesus does not disappoint. He, he definitely does reject these schools of thought. But notice what Jesus does. He quickly turns the questioning back on them, doesn't he, in verse 3. He turns the questioning back on them and says, well, what does Moses say? What does the law say? And they respond with verse 4, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Now, where is this coming from? It's coming from the law. It's not coming from just the Pharisees. It's coming from Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, which says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, he writes her certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. Now, what's interesting here is that Moses did not command or encourage divorce, but was merely permitting it. Those are different things. Also, what Moses does is give protection to the woman in regards to being divorced. In, Deut in Deuteronomy 24, Moses gave the instruction that a certificate of divorce would be handed, would be given to the woman. What is this purpose? This would be to, to show that the divorce was official, it was certified, there was documentation of this. And so it would protect the wife in the event that her, her marital status would be questioned in that community or maybe another community. So Moses was giving a regulation for what was already being practiced. Divorces were already happening, but there was no regulation of this. There was no documentation of this, no certification of this. And so what Moses is, is teaching in Deuteronomy 24, if you read this whole passage there, you see this is his intention. And so the passage of Deuteronomy 24 is where this debate, these two schools of thought arose out of. It was their interpretation of what verse 1 and really the, the rest of that uh, section there in Deuteronomy 24, their interpretation of what the issue was. And really what was happening was just this division, right? And it's so often what we do, we, we align ourselves with one group or the other and then we argue against the other and because, you know, they don't know anything and blah, 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 right? And, and we see this name calling, all this stuff that goes back and forth in division. And so what they were hoping with Jesus is to create division with him and... As he does not disappoint, he defies their expectations about the subject. He addresses the subject, but not in the way that they think he's going to address the subject. He doesn't align himself with either one of these parties, but he, he clarifies something that gets to the intention of God's law. And this is what he says in verse 5. Look at verse 5. Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. 
The first thing that Jesus does, he directs the attention of all that are listening, the, the Pharisees and, and also his disciples. He directs their attention not to divorce, but why does divorce happen in the first place? And what does he say? He says it's because of the hardness of the human heart. The hardness of heart is the cause of all divorce. This is where it's originating out of. Now, this hardness of heart, it can reveal itself in a lot of different ways. And it could be maybe, maybe just being hypercritical of your spouse. Maybe it's just lacking in forgiveness toward your spouse. Maybe it's being abusive or maybe just being irresponsible with things and maybe finances. And we just keep building this list of things of what hardness of heart reveals itself as. And again, these are symptoms to the deeper problem, what Jesus is first of all addressing, and that is the heart. These things, they all happen because of the heart in which we have. And we all have this problem at some level. Some of us deal with the hardness of our heart a little bit better than others. And by God's grace, we, we can do that. Now, divorce happens when there's been really a failure to achieve God's ideal for marriage. And the ideal for marriage is not to have a hard heart, but one that will learn to be a self-sacrificial kind of heart. When a divorce takes place, it's because it's this failure to, to do what God has commanded us to do, which is the second great commandment, and that is to love our neighbor as ourself. Or we could insert spouse, right? Spouse as ourself. There has been maybe a greater love of oneself over the love of the other person. And this is, again, where hardness of heart shows itself, that we, we love ourselves more than we love them, and so these other things start to come to the surface. Now, the first thing that Jesus points out to everyone is that Moses was not writing this law to give permission to divorce, which is what both parties were teaching. Both of them were teaching this. Uh, but he gave this, he, Moses gave this law specifically because of the hearts of the people. The, the heart was corrupt. But it needed a regulation. It needed constant regulation in order to restrain the evil of the heart. And so essentially, what Jesus is saying here in verse 5, what he's indicating is that it's the heart of the people that is the problem. It's the evil intention of the heart. And with this, if that was removed, then there would be no need for the law. If there was not an evil intention in the heart, then we could do away with this. And this wouldn't be there. And this is really the reality of all law. If, if the intention of people was good, if our hearts by nature were good, then there would be no need for the law or for law enforcement. But because the reality of who we are as fallen humanity is that we are corrupt to our core. There has been a law given. There's a law that's even written upon our hearts. Our conscience speaks to this truth. And what is the purpose of this law? What is the purpose of law enforcement? It's there to curb evil, evil intentions and evil actions. But it does not prevent evil thinking or evil actions. We, we know this to be true, but we also know that whenever a law is instituted, it helps curb the evil, or at least that should be the intention of the law. It doesn't mean that there's not laws on the books that are evil in and of themselves. That exist as well. But this is not what we see with verse 5 of what Jesus is saying about divorce. Why is there a law by Moses given? The hardness of the heart. 
that is the original problem. Then look at verse 6. He says, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. The second thing that Jesus does, he, he brings the view for everybody up to a plane where God is to look down upon his original design. To look at what is really the intention of God in his creation. And Jesus takes them all the way back, takes us back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, where, it is, where Moses wrote this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. So this verse, it teaches us that our spouse, our spouse is made in the image of God. Our spouse is made in the imago Dei, the, the Latin for this. They are an image bearer of God. They are not less than us. They are not more than us. But both of us have been made in the image of God, and this is where we need to start. We need to start treating them as such. It's when we move our eyes off of this fact, and we, we start to not look at people as being made in the image of God, that we begin to view people with contempt. This is where abuse comes from. This is where racism comes from. This is where prejudice comes from. This is where divorce comes from. It's that we start to view people as less than the image of God. We lose sight of the fact that this mate of mine is made in the image of God. And whenever that happens, I tend, you tend to mistreat them. Also, what is taught here in Genesis 1 is that God made them male and female. They are distinctly different genders, and as we study through the scriptures, we see that a man is given different roles and different responsibilities, and vice versa with the wife, with the woman. Now look at verses eight and, or 7 and 8. Jesus goes on and says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. Jesus is quoting out of Genesis 2. Genesis 2, verse 23 and 24. He's drawing everybody's attention, again, to design. Helping them to see that this is what marriage was. This is the original intent of it. And notice how Jesus has not focused yet upon divorce, has he? He's not even, not even talked about what divorce is. All he has talked about was, why is the law there? And then, what is the design? If you look at Genesis 2, 23 and 24, it says, Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become, really important, one flesh. One flesh. This idea right there, those last two words, are so vitally important to how we should view marriage. Oneness of flesh, it implies that this relationship between a husband and a wife, it's really three things, three things of what oneness of flesh is. It's monogamous, monogamous, meaning a marriage is to be only between a man and a woman. And so polygamy and polyandry, that's the female version of that, by the way, it's not the original intent of God. It was never part of the original design. And so whenever you read in your Bible and you see this polygamy happen, and you're like, well, I guess God's okay with it. No, he's not. Right? right here in Genesis 1 and 2, that was not original design. 
And so it must be monogamous. Number one. Number two, it should be lifelong. And as verse 23 is indicating, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. What is this speaking to? A oneness of flesh in marriage, such as if your body was split down the middle, you would probably die, wouldn't you? And the same is the reality inside of divorce, that it should not be split. It should be lifelong for you to live your life. You must be together. You must be in one piece. And we see here this idea of bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. It, it was very literal for Adam and Eve, wasn't it? Like extremely literal, taken out of Adam's side. Literally his bone, literally his flesh. Now for us today, that is... Not literal, and like I said in the first service, if it is literal, I would love to talk to you. Um, might have some issues to talk about that. So the, the idea here for us, though, is the imagery of one flesh. In this lifelong, the longevity of marriage, it is because of this oneness of flesh. It should be a lifelong relationship. And third of all, what one, one flesh is implying is that it is covenantal. Covenantial. And where do I get this from? Well, it's this phrase, hold fast. Hold fast. The, the Hebrew for hold fast is devak. Devak. Now, which means to cling or to cleave. So if you have a King James, you probably have this, the term cleave, to cleave to his wife. And it also means to join together or to stick together. So you can think of this as glue. Devak as glue. Now, a marriage, it's, it's a bond or a covenant in which you are stuck together in. It, it is one that you are glued together in. It is a permanent gluing that happens. So if you've ever used super glue or Loctite, you know the reality of gluing something together and it not coming apart unless you destroy it. And, and this, is, this is this idea of devak. That it's glued together, joined together in such a way that it cannot be separated unless it just destroys the pieces. It's not a contractual agreement. Devak is not this idea of a contractual agreement where there's some loophole there or some prenup written. It's a covenant that's been established to hold you fast together. And when I give counsel to those that are struggling in marriage... We talk a lot about this idea of oneness of flesh. This is really, really important if we can understand this and get this because it's the same kind of reality about, a, about seeing people in the image of God. That this other person that maybe you just can't get along with and you're just constantly uh, seeing them with contempt eyes. If you can then help uh, by the grace of God through the spirit of God to view them as being made in the image of God, your relationship with them changes. The same is true is whenever we think about our spouse in this one flesh idea. This should change the way that we feel about them, that we see them, that we treat them, that we talk to them. And Paul, he teaches us this in Ephesians 5, which we have read a little bit of that this morning. But I want to bring your attention again to that. Ephesians 5, 28 and 29, where Paul writes this. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. So Paul, he's, he's being, I think, very helpful here to help us visualize our relationship to our spouse. 
given us the reality of, of what this union is. It's monogamous, it's lifelong, it's covenantal. Why is that? Because of the oneness of flesh. Let me give you a math equation this morning. I think that would be kind of helpful for you. If, if you love math, if you don't, it's pretty simple. But God's math equation for marriage is this. One plus one equals one. One plus one equals one. Now, the problem that we have whenever divorce comes up is that we don't do our math that way. We do math our way, and we go one plus one equals two. This is not the biblical idea of marriage. It's, well, you know, we're, we're just a new number now. We're two. And Lord help me, if I'm marrying one of your kids and mom, you come up to me and say, I'm not losing a daughter, I'm gaining a son. No, you're not. You're losing a daughter. They're becoming one flesh. They do not belong to you anymore. They are gone. Now you're going to be crushed, you'll probably cry, and that's fine. Your emotions will be high anyways. You probably remember that I said that. But this is the reality. It's one flesh. They're not yours anymore. And we do our math wrong, and so we have this mindset that, well, we can split two and we can get one and one again, right? That's not how God does math in marriage. When a man and a woman, they join together in marriage, they're becoming one flesh. One flesh. It's with this understanding of, about God's design in marriage that Jesus gives us then verse 9. Verse 9 is so important. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And what the Pharisees were missing was the original intent of God, what God had intended for marriage, his design for marriage. The Greek word that's used here for join together, this, this phrase that's used, it has this meaning of being yoked together, not egg yolk, but in animals being yoked together, two pull animals being put together in a yoke, horses or donkeys or oxen or I don't know, wombats, and, and they yoked him together for what purpose? For what the master wants them to do. And they're driven together in the same direction for what the master desires. They don't get to do what they want to do, but what the master wants them to do. And so think about this. Jesus gives the Pharisees this statement to summarize what God has joined together. He has joined, yoked, locked in these two people. And no person should attempt to undo what God has united together. Now let's think about this for a moment. Jesus is saying that if a man and a woman come together in marriage, that marriage has been orchestrated by who? God. And if anyone tries to undo what God has done, then that person or persons are trying to act as God themselves. They're acting as lawgiver and removing God from his rightful place as lawgiver. And Jesus is making the point that humanity does not have the authority to overrule God. Meaning that we do not get to make the rules when it comes to marriage. The Supreme Court does not get to make the rules when it comes to what marriage is or isn't. A couple does not get to decide what marriage is or isn't. No earthly authority has that kind of authority. It is God alone who has his authority to declare what marriage is and is not. In premarital counseling, when I talk with couples about their wedding vows, I, I ask this question, what would it take, what would be the scenario 
for you to divorce your future spouse. Of course, you know, they're like, oh, nothing. I love you so much, right? It's like, okay, guys, let's just get to it. Let's, just, let's get down to the brass tacks of things. What is it going to take? What is, what is it going to be? Because whatever it is, we need to put that into the wedding vows, okay? Whatever it is, let, let's just write it out. Let's make sure everybody hears it publicly. And so I give them some ideas, maybe just to, to help them along. What about them maybe being a liar and a cheat? Maybe about them not being what you expected them to be. Or maybe that they're angry and mean all the time. Maybe that they're just nagging you constantly and berating you. Maybe them not fulfilling your expectations. Maybe them being paralyzed for the rest of their life and they can't provide or care for themselves. Maybe, maybe they're an addict of some sort or maybe they're just unfaithful to you. So whatever it is, let's put that into the vows. I think we know that we should expect difficulties. I think we should know and understand that when we're joining two people together, these are not two perfectly righteous people, but two sinners. And we're really good at that, aren't we? What do traditional wedding vows say? Well, they say, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, till What? Death do us part. Now, why do traditional marriage vows say this? Because there used to be an understanding that there is no plan B or C or D. These two individuals, as they come together, they're coming together as one flesh. It's monogamous, it's lifelong, it's covenantal. This was the expectation. There, there was no prenup. It was only an expectation that these two individuals are going to become one flesh and live the rest of their lives together. That was the expectation. Well, let me ask you this. Do you think that after the fall, in Genesis 3, after the fall, that Adam and Eve, they looked at each other, and Adam said to Eve, why did I ever marry you? Or, or Eve looks at Adam and says, I just don't think we should be married anymore. I just don't love you. Like, as we think about that, it's like completely ridiculous, right? Completely ridiculous that that would ever be the case. So if it's so ridiculous in that situation, why, why do we ever entertain thoughts about divorce like this? Why, why would you entertain ideas like that about your relationship? And maybe you would like to argue by saying, well, you know, Adam and Eve, they, they didn't have any other options. You know, the, the pond was not really full of fish like it is today. Well, let me direct you back to God's word, verse 9 in Mark 10. What does Jesus say? What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. God joined together who? Adam and Eve. But who also has been joined together by God? You and your relationship. Now, maybe you married someone who is difficult to live with. That's true. That's a reality. Or maybe you got married for some sort of unrighteous reason. It wasn't a good reason. Maybe it was a sinful relationship to begin with, and now you're married. But God has joined you together, and you do not have the authority to break it. Now, maybe you have a bad marriage. That's, that happens. That's true. It's a reality. Or it's not what you thought it would be, not what you hoped it would be. But again... It's still true that you do not have the authority to undo it. 
You might have the legal civil right to do that, but you haven't been given a God-given right to do that. And this is the truth that Jesus is pushing back on these Pharisees with. They're, they're, they're holding to their law, but Jesus says, you've completely missed the intention of all of it. You've completely missed why it's even there. As I conclude this morning, I want to take you to Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33. I want us to look at, again, what Paul has to say about marriage, because this is such a beautiful picture that he paints for us of how we should view each other in marriage. And again, as you've noticed, I haven't spent a lot of time talking about divorce in and of itself, but about the same things Jesus has been talking about. Why is it there? Why has it happened? And what is the intention? What is the, the goal in this? In Ephesians 5, Paul tells us this is the original intent of marriage in the first place. It gets to this point. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husband. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Whoever... However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. What is, what is the picture Paul's painting for marriage? It's, it's to mimic Jesus' relationship with the church. Why was Adam and Eve married in the first place? Jesus and the church. If you look at verse 25, Paul tells us that this... This truth, husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What kind of a relationship is that? It's a self-sacrificing kind of relationship, a self-sacrificing kind of love. This is what our marriages should look like. They should model this. They should demonstrate this. This is the kind of love that is opposite of hard-heartedness. The hard hearts does not think this way, does not act this way, does not love this way. Self-sacrificing love is it's focused on the other party and what do they need most? What is best for them? And, and not in the thinking of, you know, well, I'm just doing it for them. That's why. Not really. You're, you're still focused on yourself in some of those thoughts. And, but a true sacrificial love is dying to self, elevating this person, where you can love them the way that Christ has loved the church. And the example that Paul gives us here, it's a foolproof example. Jesus, he's perfect, and the church. We got some imperfections still. He's working those out. He's working those things out, as what Paul even says here, that it will be without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. The church will be clean. It will be a beautiful bride when it gets to heaven. 
Jesus, in his love for the church, is the model that we have for marriage. This is what we should aim at. And so if spouses would love each other like Jesus loves the church, then what? We would have fantastic marriages, wouldn't we? Our marriages look fantastic because we would love like Jesus is loving the church, self-sacrificing. You might say, well, yeah, but my spouse is blankety-blank, right? You throw out some term that relates to them. Say, well, you don't really know my spouse. You know how bad they are, and you grumble and complain about them. Yeah, 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 I've heard it before. Uh, let, me, let me remind you quickly about who you are and who you were in Christ. Let me just remind you of the goodness of God and what has been done for you. The reality is, is that we, we were just so wretched, as the song tells us. Our hearts hardened to God, hating God. We despised Him. We were in rebellion to Him. We loved our sin. We loved our, our own righteousness, which was no righteousness at all. We thought that our way of doing things was the right way, and, and we rejected everything that God was saying. But what did God do? He sent His only begotten Son for what, what purpose? To, to save us. To save us from our own sin. He lives, Jesus lives a completely perfect life on this earth. And all of his thoughts, all of his words, all of his deeds, he goes to the cross completely innocent before God and honestly before men, but he's condemned and he dies. For what purpose? As a, as Stephen talked about last week, a propitiation for you. He absorbs the wrath of God for you. He takes it upon himself so that you would not suffer that wrath. Did you deserve it? By no means. There was nothing good in you. But in God's love, in his compassion, in his mercy, in his grace, he dies in your place. A self-sacrificing God. This is the love that he's had for you. But he did not stay dead in the grave. He rose from the grave. And three days later, he shows that he is, he is the conqueror of death, of sin, but also in that, that there can be a oneness of flesh with Jesus by being in repentance and faith with him. That you're now united with Christ, with the body of Christ. This is the reality of the Christian. Jesus has loved you before you loved him. He has loved you with a self-sacrificing love when the only love that you had was for self. He has loved you when you, you doubted and you rejected him. He has loved you despite all of your constant failings. He has been patient with you even when you have not been patient with him. He has been kind to you when you have lashed out in anger and in rage toward him. Jesus has been the perfect spouse to you even when you have been the opposite of that. And I say these things to you to, to try to humble you, to try to get you to see how really unlovable you are in, in the truth of what we really are, but also to see how much love has been lavished on you. The kindness, the, the grace, the mercy of God that's been shown to you. So 
Let's not use the line, well, you don't know my spouse. Do you know yourself? Do you know how sinful you are? Do you know how despicable you are? What you've done against God? I think we need to be reminded often of just how big of a mess we are and how much God has forgiven us. And this is, again, how we should approach other people humbly, specifically our spouse. When we look at the relationship that Jesus has with this church, with you and I that have with, the, with him, we do not see a man that is ready to walk away. We, we do not see a man that has his eyes on somebody else. What do we see with Jesus? We see that we are his he, he, he loves us, and he loves us with a sacrificial love, and that love cost him his life. Jesus' relationship to the church is one of permanence. Read Romans 8. It points to this fact that if, if you're in him, there's no condemnation, and there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Because of this example that we have in Christ, because this is the the supreme example that we have for what marriage should model, what marriage should mimic, with how we should view each other, with, with how we should treat each other, we, in our relationship with our spouse, it should be one of permanence. And because of this example, and if we would follow this example, we would find that we would not break these relationships, break these these covenantal agreements, our relationship with Christ, our relationship with Him, it is a permanent one. And our view of marriage should model that as well. Look at verse 9 again. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Let no man separate. As we spend some time in reflection this morning, I want to give you just two things. To spend some time reading through, reflecting through, praying through, maybe writing notes to yourself. First of all, is that Ephesians 5 passage, 22 through 33. Maybe you just need to reread that, pray through that. Maybe you need to highlight that and write some notes about that. And the second thing is the idea of oneness of flesh. I want us to really, whether you're married or not, we need to ponder this idea when we we talk about marriage and we give counsel and you're like, oh, I'm not a counselor. If you're talking to your friends about their relationship, you're counseling them. So we need to think of what oneness of flesh means and the, the, the biblical basis of this and how we should view marriage. So I want to give you a few moments to, to think on these things, to pray through these things. If you want to come and pray up here, you're welcome to do that. Again, I want to tell you that I'll be available this week after service to talk to you about these things. Your elders are available to talk to you about these things. We want to help you in your marriage. We want to help you maybe in your divorce. We, we want to help you understand what does the Bible have to say and what do we need to do with this. So spend just, just a few moments reflecting upon what you've heard this morning.